I have the privilege this morning of continuing a conversation that we've been in over the course of the summer. If you've been around, this is going to be familiar. If you are just joining us, then men, welcome to it. We've been in a conversation in the Old Testament book of Proverbs. And in this conversation, we're really trying to figure out what does it look like to live life with a little more wisdom? What does it look like to be a little more wise. And uh, as we've said week after week, we are defining wisdom as the art of making life's best choices in the moment. Making life's best choices in the moment. Wisdom isn't so much about how brilliant you are, how high your IQ is, how much accumulated experiences you've you know, gathered over the course of time. It's your ability to make life's best choices in the moment. And I'm going to say it again. It doesn't matter whether you're a follower of Jesus Christ or you're not. It doesn't matter if you're a kid, a college student, or you're in the prime of life, which is raising teenagers. Um, and that's probably empty nesting. I don't know what it is, you know, singleness. Whatever the prime of life is. Um, It doesn't really matter who you are. This should be of incredible concern to you because the ability to make life's best choices in the moment is what leads us down the path to the place where we become the best version of ourselves and we have the greatest impact on our world. The art of making life's best choices in the moment, if I do that over and over again, it's inevitably going to lead me to a place called fullness of life and a fewness of regrets. And it doesn't matter who you are. It should be of interest to you to live the kind of life that doesn't look back and say, I wish I hadn't made those choices. It doesn't matter who you are. You want to get to the place where you're saying, now this is living. I am who God designed me to be. And I'm not living or haunted by the regrets of decisions that I made at some point. Um, This morning, I, I want to ask... Uh, the question, right? Well, what if? What if you hear all of that? Um, <clears throat> what if you spend some time in the book of Proverbs? What if you come to this, you know, conversation week after week after week, and you end up deciding wisdom? Eh, no thanks. I'm good. What happens? If you end up deciding the art of making life's best choices, no, I'm good. I'm solid. Thank you. My life has worked out just fine to this point without some quest for wisdom. And I believe it's going to continue to work out just as it has. So thanks, wisdom, but no thank you. What if you hear all of this and you get to the point where you say, nothing is broken enough in my life for me to feel the need to change anything? So no thank you to to wisdom. Now, I'll sit politely in a church service because that's the thing to do. And uh, man, thank you to you, Mr. Preacher Man in your red shoes. But I'm not going to make any adjustments to my life. Thank you very much. Matter of fact, if you're honest, you might say, I've been in a number of these conversations. I have not thought once about it. I've definitely not made any adjustments in the direction of wisdom. Wisdom, yeah, it's all right, but not really interested. Or maybe you would never say that out loud, but your life betrays you because it's made the announcement that you've not made any adjustments, any changes, any steps in the direction of becoming more wise. I'm just asking, what if 
We have a whole conversation about wisdom and you determine, not interested, not for me. Well, I suspect Solomon, the author of the majority of the Proverbs, might say to you, there may be a foundational problem. You may want to lift the hood of your heart and look inside. I wonder if Solomon might not say to you, there's a problem with the foundation. More specifically, I wonder if Solomon wouldn't say to you, you have a fear problem. If you have a copy of the Bible, meet me, Proverbs chapter 9. Proverbs chapter 9, we're going to look at one proverb, verse number 10. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. Here's what Solomon says. The fear of the Lord is the beginning or the foundation of wisdom. And knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Fear is the foundation for wisdom. If your life says, I don't really care about wisdom. If your life says, I'm not going to make any adjustments, I'll take no steps in the direction of figuring out what does it look like to make life's best choices in the moment. Whether you say it out loud or you don't, Solomon would say, you might be experiencing a fear problem. You just don't fear the Lord. Because we can talk about everything else as creatively as we want. But if that's not addressed, you won't care about it. And you will not move in the direction of wisdom. Because out of a fear of the Lord springs wisdom. So, do you fear the Lord. I mean, what fear rating would you give yourself? One to ten, from barely to bigly, or however you, you, you want to rate it. Do you fear the Lord? You cannot be wise unless you do. And whatever success you're experiencing may be brilliance, it may be the accumulation of experience. Experience. It may be intelligence, but it is not biblical wisdom. So do you fear the Lord? Well, I don't know. What does it even mean to fear the Lord? Great question, by the way. A question which, not surprising to anyone, has been debated in the church over the centuries because that's what we love to do. There is such a wide variety of interpretations of what it means to fear the Lord. Here are a few of them. As some might say, to fear the Lord means to be afraid. To be scared of the Lord. And then you have other people 
who would say, nope, 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 nope. God is a good God whose name is love. He doesn't want us to be afraid of him. To fear the Lord means to revere him, to, to, to respect him. Right, Because many of us may not be afraid of any of the U.S. presidents in history. But if they walked into a room, I may be prone to maybe, maybe stand or maybe applaud. Not because I'm afraid of them, but because I respect the office that they occupy. To fear the Lord means to revere, to respect him as the God he is and the role he plays in the universe. And others say, nope, it doesn't mean to be scared. It doesn't mean to revere or respect because those words are not strong enough. It means to experience terror. It means to be terrified of God. And others are like, you've got to be kidding. That is so Old Testament. That is so old school. No. We're in the New Testament now. We're in the era of grace. The fear of the Lord means to be grateful. To live with this overwhelming sense of gratitude on account of what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. Oh, I'd be so curious to know, by the way, if you're sitting in a theological classroom and having a you know, Bible study with your friends... Which definition you would vote for? If you've grown up in or around the church and you've heard this phrase, the fear of the Lord, I'd be so curious to know which one of these you think it means. What does it mean to you to fear the Lord? Oh, that's right. I have the microphone, so I'll go. Um, I think it means to be... A forever fool? I work hard on this stuff. Write this down. There's not even an admission fee to come in, right, for this. Write it. I think it means all of the above. I agree with what everyone has said. I think it's to be a forever fool. To be afraid, to revere him, to be terrified, to be grateful. All of those things. But mainly, I think fear means fear. I think fear means there is no English word or word in any other language that can quite capture the intensity of what this word actually means. But I think it's in the category of being absolutely, utterly terrified of the Lord. I think fear means fear the way we would use it when we talk about fear in our cultural context on a daily basis. To be utterly terrified of the Lord. Because listen, I don't know what you've heard about the Lord, but he is the awe-striking creator of the universe he's not safe he's not tame he's not somehow cute he's not somehow your buddy in the sky Hebrews 12 verse 29 says this our Lord is an all-consuming 
consuming fire. That's how it describes him. And if we would just stop theologizing for a second and um, just ask the simple question, how would you respond in the presence of an all-consuming fire? How would you feel if you knew that an all-consuming fire was in the general vicinity, let alone moving in your general direction? Because no matter what I say in the safety of these church services or in front of my buddies or whatever we might say in a theological classroom, how would you actually respond if God walked into a room? You would freak out. Let's just be honest. You would be absolutely terrified. Why do we even try and make this word mean anything less than what our involuntary instinctive response would be in the presence of an all-consuming fire called the Lord? Come on. I mean, we talk about this. I do. I I was watching a a hilarious video recently. And many of you know Mike Tyson, the the fear fearless, scary boxer dude with head tattoos and all of that stuff. Um, But they were doing this prank on people. They were interviewing people about Mike Tyson and he was behind a door. And so mid-interview, he would come out behind them and they would have no idea. And so they would ask these people a question. Do you think you could beat Mike Tyson in a fight? Man, you know, I think I could. And then he would tap them on the shoulder. Ah, they would freak out. It was hilarious. And it reminded me so much of this. Like I sit in the theological classroom. I'm like, to fear the Lord. I wonder what that means. You know, I feel like it means. And then an all-consuming fire appeared. And what would we do? Ask each other, like, what did we say? Respect or revere? I can't remember. You would freak out. He is an all-consuming fire. We would not be like, I respect your office so much. Doing a great job as God. Thank you for your service. That would never be what would happen. Man, you've got to check out some of the biblical responses to our Lord. One time, God's presence descended on a mountaintop and Yikes. Exodus chapter 19, verse 16. Check this out. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain. And a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. And the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder and louder, Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. Everybody trembled out of respect. No, it's out of absolute terror. It is the instinctive response of the people. This is the awareness God could break out and swallow us up at any time. And there is nothing we could possibly do to stop it 
or to stave it off. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 21 says the sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I'm just asking you, is there a fear of the Lord in you? Um, in, in those days, God had uh, Moses and his people build a, an ark, not like the, the, the big boat ark, but it was a small wooden box that had these um, golden crafted angelic beings on the top of said box. This box is called the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant um, represented the presence of God with his people. And as much as we'd like to try, God did not live in the box. But the box represented his physical presence with the people. And because the box represented his presence... God had very specific instructions about how that box should be treated, how that box should be transported, if that box should be touched. And if you lived in that community, you just assumed, do not touch the box. Don't touch the box. Centuries later, King David was throwing a massive worship party because this box had been stolen by an enemy nation. And after a long time, David managed to secure it, to bring it back. And now they're transporting it, taking it back home. And they are celebrating because this box represented the presence of the living God. And as they're transporting this box, the oxen on, that is carrying this box stumbles. And well, let's, let's check this out. This is um, 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 6. When they came to the threshing floor... Of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took a hold of the box, the Ark of the Covenant, because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the Ark of God. Aren't you glad you came to church? Um, no one touches the holy box. That represents my presence like that. This was so awe-striking to the people. I don't care what your reason is. You don't get to decide what circumstances are special enough for you to disregard something I have said. And so this dude who tried to lend a hand ended up losing his life. Second Samuel verse, chapter 6 verse 9. David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? The man after God's own heart was so terrified of this box that represent the box that represented the presence of God that he as the king ordered it to go and live at somebody else's house. It's like, mm, it's all coming home with me. And some sap had to go keep that thing at his place. Uh, interesting, by the way, if you read the story, that dude's family was blessed beyond measure on account of the Ark of the Covenant. 
This was not respect or honor by themselves. This was straight up awareness that God can put me on the ground any time he decides to. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Do you have any sense of fear of him? Because you cannot grow in wisdom without it. And no surprise that this same David would say in the Psalms, Psalm 99 verse 1, I can't help but believe David had in mind this experience in 2 Samuel. He says, the Lord reigns, let the nations tremble. He sits enthroned between the cherubim, those angelic beings. Let the earth shake. But, thankfully, that was the Old Testament, and we now live in the New Testament. Thankfully, that was the Old Testament, back when God used to be super crabby, before he had learned about mental health and got some counseling. But in the New Testament, though, no, centuries and centuries after David... There was an individual by the name of John. John was one of Jesus' closest disciples, one of Jesus' closest friends. And he's on an island somewhere, and the Lord appears to him. And check this out, Revelation chapter 1, verse 12. John is testifying. He says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands, this is awesome, by the way was someone like the son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet. And with a golden sash around his chest, the hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, because he's a consuming fire. And his voice was like the sound of rushing Waters In his right hand he held seven stars. How do you even do that? And coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And I'm just asking you, how would you respond? Matter of fact, is there multiple choice options of how one would respond In a scenario like this, there is only one appropriate and instinctive response. And it's a response that John has. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. We'll come back to that. But John had walked with Jesus for three years. John had laid his head on Jesus' chest. They were incredibly close. But now he has an encounter with Jesus without the veil of his human flesh. And his whole body goes into complete shock. And so would yours and so would mine. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But thankfully, Jesus is going to come along and he's going to fix all of this and he's going to set the record straight. Will he? 
Maybe. Matthew chapter 10 verse 28. Now this is Jesus speaking. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, what are the next two words? Say them out loud. Be afraid of the one who can destroy body and soul in hell. Don't be scared of people who worst case scenario can destroy your body. Jesus says, I'll tell you who to be afraid of. The Lord. He can break your body and burn your soul. These are strong words from Jesus. Who loves the little children of the world, red and yellow. He's not speaking about respect or honor in and of themselves. No, God is a consuming fire. Man, I am driving this point into the ground. Because if you're anything like me, we have lost a sense of the awesomeness of the Lord. And we've become way too familiar with fire. We have diluted the awesomeness of the living God. Man, I had to acknowledge this this week with the Lord. Like, I've, I've diluted this high view of who you are. And I think there's a number of reasons for that. Uh, I think one of them is in order to make um, Christianity more appealing to the world around us, I think we felt the need to make God more um, approachable. He's not approachable. He's a consuming fire. Do not touch the mountain. Do not touch the box. But I think in order to make God more accessible to our friends and our family, we felt the need to tell them, oh, he's chill. He's cool. Come on over. Just approach him. He's really nice. He doesn't mind that anymore. He doesn't care about that. He's fine. He is not fine. He's a consuming fire. I think some of this is also just we've um, we've heard that God is love, and I think what we've often done is we've taken the attribute of God's love and made it His primary and at times His only attribute. The Lord is love, and love is all that the Lord is. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. He loved the world and he loved the world unconditionally. And we've latched onto that attribute of God so much so that I think it's made us a little bit entitled. And we'll say things like this. When something painful happens in our lives or happens in the lives of somebody we love, we will have the audacity to say, how could a loving God let And then the church will rush to defend. Oh, no, no, no. He was just having a bad day. We'll talk to him. God, seriously, right? And we'll start to make excuses for this loving God of ours because we have to make him palatable and super approachable. And all he can possibly be is 
Love. Did you know, long before we knew anything about the love of God, we knew that he was holy and that he was a consuming fire. Um, I, I think we've lost a sense of that. Because feel free at any point, by the way, to ask the question with a different attribute. How could a consuming fire, a holy God, allow, and you're going to end up asking the question, how does he let any of us take another breath? Change the attribute and talk about his holiness. And all of a sudden, the question starts to change a little bit for us. I also think the invisibility of God has played a part in this, right? I mean, when was the last time you saw him on a mountain thundering and and lightning and in his voice like trumpet sounds when was the last time you saw him looking like bronze in his face like the brilliance of the sun right it's been a while right and it's tempting to think in his invisibility for us to reinvent an image of God that's more acceptable to us like well we haven't seen him for a while maybe he's changed Maybe he's chiller now. Maybe he's not the same. By the way, we'll come back to this, which is one of the reasons that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Because most of us will acknowledge, ooh, and I don't think anybody's watching, that's when I make the decisions that I make. Because the invisibility of God. And we've just lost the sense of The bigness and the grandeur of God and Solomon is saying, listen, just because he's not shaking the mountain recently doesn't mean he's not going to shake the heavens and the earth soon. Wisdom starts by remembering he's still an all-consuming fire, even though you might not see him. Okay, timeout, Kondo, theological timeout. Um, doesn't the Bible say like 365 times, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. I've not given you a spirit of fear. Do not be afraid. And now you're telling us like we should be afraid? I mean, when God, the Lord, or he would send one of his angelic representatives to a person... Um, That person would see the Lord or see angelic representative and they would freak out with fear. And, And what's the first thing that the angelic being would typically tell this person? Do not be afraid. See, because the Lord doesn't want us to be afraid of him, right? This is how we start to theologize. Um, just to be clear, by the way, just to be clear. Whenever the Lord or one of his messengers would tell someone, do not be afraid. That was not any kind of statement that their response was inappropriate. That was not a correction. 
That was an assurance. Hey, calm down. I'm not here to hurt you. That's all that meant. Do not be afraid. I didn't come for that. It's in no way saying the response of fear was inappropriate. It was just clarifying intentions. In other words, oh, be very afraid until I tell you otherwise. There is no way any of these angelic beings were saying, oh, and next time if I show up, just run up to me, dab me up, like what's up, you know, and give me a hug, you know, and it's all no. The response is appropriate. I will tell you why I'm here. And I think about this, um, and this is just a public service announcement. When I'm running in the Winona Trails, every now and then, and maybe too much now, and maybe too much then as well, but uh, I will be running, and somebody who's walking their dogs, because people in the world like dogs. So they'll be coming with their dog, and I'm running, and I know inevitably we're going to run into each other. And I will do the same thing every time. A, I'm like, uh, what's going to happen? You know, and then I'll take out my you know, ear thing, stop listening to the music, and I will stop. Right? Because I don't know if your dog has a particular appetite for leg, right? So I don't know this. So I need to know, and I'll ask the same question, like, hey, am I okay? And everyone gives me the most annoying response. Oh, gosh, you're fine. He's harmless. I'm like, he's drooling. How am I supposed to know he's harmless? I don't know. That's kind of what it's like. Like, I'm freaking out, and the angels say, oh, no, 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 no. Nothing bad is going to happen to you. You're good. That owner would never say to me, oh, dog is harmless. Come to my house anytime, break in. Like, oh, no, that may be a different response at that particular, at that particular point. But I think we read encounters like this, and it's tempting to think that do not be afraid means you're not supposed to feel afraid. No, that's just clarifying you know, uh, the intention of what it is that the being is there to do. Um, Kondo, I thought the Bible said boldly approach the throne of grace. Um, and you just said, oh no, God is not approachable, right? Um, okay, so first of all, a couple of things. One is, let's just be clear when we're using imagery and when we're not. None of us actually walk into the physical presence of God and walk up to his throne. You would die. If anyone sees God, they die. Just to be clear, right? So we're using pictures of the relationship and the access we have to the person of God. But the second thing, and more importantly, is that's why we're going to take communion here in a few moments. Um, the invitation to boldly approach does not make God more approachable. It makes Jesus more incredible. Woo! You should be consumed 
anytime you come anywhere near the presence of God, except for the fact that we are clothed in the fireproof robe of the righteousness of Jesus. That's it. God has not become more approachable. We've just become transformed. We are shielded by the person and the finished work of Jesus Christ. Do not go telling your friends God is approachable. Or just go up to him. Just go to the mountain. Just approach him. No, the message to our friends and family is God is a consuming fire. And there is only one who can shield you from him. And his name is Jesus. Run to him. We don't need to make God smaller in order for people to come to him. There is a gate. There is a way. And his name is Jesus Christ. Listen, when we walk into the presence of God metaphorically and one day physically, it should freak us out. How am I still standing here? Jesus, I praise you for the fact that I have access to talk to a consuming fire and not be consumed. That doesn't say anything less about God. It says more about Jesus. God hasn't changed. We haven't necessarily done anything. It's the finished and full work of the person of Jesus Christ. If you don't care about wisdom or you're not growing to make better decisions in the moment, it might be a fear problem. Solomon is saying the foundation of wisdom is a fear of the Lord, an honest awareness that he is holy fire who could and should consume me. Here's the question. When I start to believe that, don't you imagine that it's going to start to affect the decisions I make in the moments? If God is a consuming fire and I have no business coming anywhere near him and is a consuming fire who sits above it all and is a fire that I will stand before one day. Is that not going to start to make me weigh the decisions I make in the moments? But if God is little and is a little buddy and he's approachable and he's pettable and you can put him in a little box... Then all of a sudden, I make the kinds of decisions that make me happy. Because the primary measure of whether or not I should make a decision is my five-year plan, my college major, how it's going to affect you know, my, my online dating profile, how it's going to affect my portfolio, whether it makes me feel good in the moment or it doesn't. And there's not going to be wisdom in that. So I'll listen to people talk about wisdom. And I'm going to ask the question, you know, what do I think about it? When you've stood in a place of believing he's a consuming fire, what you think about it is not going to be the primary question. Proverbs chapter 9 verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Holy One. Holy means... Set apart and set above all things. It's a way of describing the Lord as in a completely other category. A category all to himself. Right? If this consuming fire is in a category above all. 
a category set apart from all, then my first concern is going to be what does he think about my decisions? And all of a sudden, it doesn't matter what I feel about it. That's not the primary question. But think about what's happened to the church. Well, but I don't feel good about that. That may be fine, and that's fine. Okay, all right. The question is, what does the Holy One, because true understanding is understanding what the Holy One has to say about that. And all of a sudden, it doesn't matter. Regardless of how happy it makes the boy, regardless of you know, how much it affects the things that people think about me, those don't become the primary concerns. And all of a sudden, I'm not making my decisions based on everyone else and what they're doing and what everyone else in culture says is okay. The Holy One who stands above culture stands alone. He's the one that I'm most concerned about. And even in the moments when it feels like nobody else in my entire group of friends thinks anything about this. The fact that the Holy One says gossip mm -mm, becomes enough in the decisions you make in the moment about what to say when everyone is spilling the tea and talking about this person in one way or another. All of a sudden you're like, I'm going to make a wise decision here because of the Holy One. And all of a sudden, it's not what my friends define as tipsy and it's okay as long as you don't this and the other. All of a sudden, it's what does the Holy One say? And it starts to change the way I make decisions in light of a growing fear of the Lord. True understanding and wisdom is not taking a poll. It's looking at what he says in his word. So I'm just asking, is there a fear of God in you? How much do you consider who God is and what God wants when you make decisions? If you don't, there is not a fear in you and wisdom is not going to emerge from that. And the bigger question is when you're in context where you believe no one else sees and no one else will find out what kinds of decisions do you make? What's the biggest factor? And if your biggest factor is uh, these people might find out and those people might find out may the spirit revive in us a sense of the fear of an all-consuming fire who sees all and is above all. The biggest concern ought to be what does he say? How often do you look at something in your life and you know, like, this is not okay. I know the Lord has said it, but I'm going to do it anyway. I've gotten away with it for years. I'm going to perpetuate doing it. Because I think, I mean, he's a warming fireplace, but I don't think much more of him than that. And so now we're even at the place where it's like, I know it's wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. That means my view of God has faded and the spirit needs to revive and reawaken it. We're going to take communion. And um, I want to say a couple of things about uh, 
this. This is, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, this is a reminder and a declaration of what Jesus has done for us. The, the wafer thingamajigger at the top, you know, it represents the body of Christ broken for our access to God, right? And the blood represents, I mean, the, the, the cup represents the blood of Jesus that cleanses our sin and makes us righteous in the eyes of an all-consuming fire. So we're going to take this together here in a moment. We're going to make a couple of declarations if you're a follower of Jesus. I want to read a, a, a section of scripture. And um, just so I don't ruin the moment of communion, I want to warn you ahead of time. This little thing here is, uh, is not delicious. So <laughs> if you're going to measure Christianity based on this little thing, I just don't. It's, um, it's really strange, but it, 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 works. it works. So um, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. The author is going to compare the Old Testament, the New Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant. He says, you've not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire. To darkness, gloom, and storm. You've not come to a trumpet blast or uh, to, to such a voice speaking words. That those who heard it begged that no further words be spoken to them. Because they were afraid. Verse 20. Because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touched the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. Verse 22. But you, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God. The heavenly Jerusalem. You, you have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. This is the new covenant now. To the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all. To the spirits of the righteous made perfect. To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word. We're about to experience a representation of that blood. Than the blood of Abel. Verse 25. See to it. That you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth. How much less will we escape if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised. Once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. The words once more, indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Lots here, lots here. Verse 28, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Not was a consuming fire. Not like, oh, God used to be different back in the Old Testament. He's chilled out now. The author says, if that's what it was like back then, how much more now that Jesus has done what he's done for you, you should never disregard anything God has to say. For he is a consuming fire. I feel like in the era of grace, we've become so casual and cavalier with God. And the author to the Hebrews would say, no, you more than anybody should be concerned. After what Jesus has done and after what you know God is going to do, there should be in you this longing to heed his word. That is 
wisdom. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, he has torn the curtain and he has said, come on in with confidence, not cockiness, not casualness, but with confidence in what Jesus Christ has done. Do you need to repent of a direction or decisions you know you've been making, even though God has said not to? I want to give you a couple of seconds and then I'll pray. Do you need to repent of just a low view of God where you are now in the center and the decisions are really about what makes you happy? We ought to repent of that and ask him to heighten our view. So I want to just give you a moment and then I'll pray for all of us. God, you are a consuming fire. You are a holy God. And yet in your grace, you made a way for us to not only know you and enjoy you and come near to you, but you made a way for us to hear you and to live for you in the power and name of Jesus Christ. Thank you that you will continually forgive us when we come to you and we acknowledge that we've made decisions for ourselves. And so we pray that you'd forgive us of that. And Lord, we pray that you'd forgive us of a small view of you and spirit of the living God. Make us wise by raising our view of the Lord. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you that you shield us and you cover us and you make us right and righteous in the eyes of God. We praise you. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.